Greater Good Radio. I use as a rule of thumb that I'm trying to get about five times my money in three years or ten times my money in five years. Hi, we can design your home in one minute or less. Inspire. Inspire. If you are doing your passion on a daily basis, then you're never going to have to work a day in your life. Greater Good Radio, brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely loyal banking. Welcome to another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me... Welcome to another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me is my lovely co-host, Carrie Leong. Thank you, Evan. Today's guest is Nicholas Mitsakos, the chairman of the board of directors for Danya International. He is a founding partner of MKS Ventures, a venture capital fund. Nicholas co-founded nine companies that achieved liquidity events through successful IPOs or acquisitions. Please welcome to our show, Nicholas Misakos. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Nicholas, you're so busy. You're involved with six boards. Mm-hmm. What is your average day like? Well, because I have a relatively unstructured day, it means it starts early and ends later than most people's. So, uh, even now, I'm involved with business in Europe. So early in the morning, I have calls with people in London. You know, during the day, it's very typical that I'll be either on the phone on my way to a meeting or in a meeting. What time does that start? Uh, usually around 6 or 6.30 in the morning. And then it will end at uh, 11, 12 o'clock at night while I'm on the phone with people in Asia. And in between, what happens is I tend to be in a lot of meetings. And most of those meetings are with people who are either operating at the companies or the executives or other board members themselves. And unfortunately, there's no easier way to do it than to be in person because things get discussed when you're in a room with someone that just won't get discussed on a phone, won't be written down in an email, and it sort of brings life to the situation. And unless you're willing to do that, you can't be as effective as you otherwise would. So travel time is an issue then? Travel time is a big issue for me. Uh, and. I'm just permanently jet-lagged, perhaps, is one way to think about it. And, and it's, it's a, a concept that you have to embrace, that you either have staff and employees that do this, or, or you do it yourself. And I think it then depends on your makeup as an individual, whether you want to be the person doing it or have people reporting to you about what they've done. And how many employees do you have to help keep you sane? <laughs> the, uh, well, the, the short answer is it's me. And the longer answer is, you know, the employees at my companies who work very hard. Mm -hmm. And so I really do leverage off of them. And I have employees at companies that range from a total of maybe 50 to 60 to one company that has uh, almost 1,000 employees. So wait, who, who handles your schedule then? I pretty much handle my own schedule. There's uh, no way to manage all the subtleties from all the inputs uh, unless I get some help uh, from someone who just knows all the things I'm up to, and that's a little hard to, to manage. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, but I don't want to overstate it. I mean, it's it's a choice that I make, 
and I think that other people have assistants that kind of run their lives. You know, there's that joke from that movie where someone said, well, I, I knew your assistant better than I knew you. And uh, sometimes that could be that's true. That's true, though, a lot of times. That, that's a lot of times true. And so mm -hmm. I actually try to avoid that. I want them to know me. And so you pay a little bit of a price for that. But I think that's kind of the nature of, of why I do what I do, is to be more attached to the companies I'm involved with. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also a good lesson to be good, be nice to the assistant, because the assistant controls a lot of things. I can't underestimate that. Uh, the, the assistant is, controls that person's life maybe more than you may think. Mm -hmm. And that's an important tip for anyone. How long have you had this energy to be involved with so many things? Well, it, it does help if you're an insomniac. And, and I think that I, I unfortunately get that trait from my mother. So it, it does, I do require less sleep. And uh, you know, maybe when I'm 60, I'll require a whole lot more sleep because <laughs> I'm, I'm deprived. But, but it, it, you know, the energy is, is just there. And I think the thing that's exciting is every situation is new. And so, for instance, we, we mentioned some of the companies I'm involved with. So Hawaii Biotech is a very exciting opportunity. And even today, there's something new every day. And before I came here, I had nonstop meetings beginning at around 7 in the morning, uh, up until I just sort of ran over here <laughs> to make this interview. So that keeps you very energized. So with Hawaii Biotech being here, and then where's Nanya located? Uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, okay. Silicon Valley. And then you have other companies in Europe. What, what are you doing on the plane while you're traveling? I, uh, I read on the plane. So I don't get to watch those terrible movies, and, and maybe that's a good thing. And I don't get to eat much of the airline food, and I think that's a good thing too. But uh, you, know, you don't you, eat because you're working. You, you don't eat at all. Well, I, well, I try to minimize it because the food's bad, not because uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so engrossed. But uh, I think that that one thing that you have to that take advantage of the situation as it's handed to you. So the one advantage of a plane is no one's going to call you, at least not yet, right? And yeah, it gives me the chance to read a lot. So it's mostly preparing for what I'm going to do when I go. There. Oh, okay, so you're not necessarily reading novels or, or no. business books. You're reading actual documents and and uh, just catching up on all these different companies. Yeah, now, you know, I think it's interesting. I want to make the point about material to read because I think that if, if you're trying to do business, uh, you have to understand what's happening in the world uh, okay. on, on many dimensions. And so, uh, so I think that people can be too narrow in, in what they read. So, for instance, uh, there's a wonderful magazine called The Economist, which covers sort of international news. And I think that should be a Bible for anybody. You read that cover to cover? Read it, uh, try to read it cover to cover every week because it talks about all the dimensions of, of, of business, finance, as well as politics around the world. And I think if you're naive to that, you're doing a great disservice to any company you're involved with because every company today is a corporate citizen. So I have a, several of my companies in Silicon Valley have operations in China and India and in Eastern Europe. And these are companies with less than 100 employees. So if you're going to start a company today, you have to think about a global strategy from the first day. And I think, maybe to make that point, that's probably the greatest significant change that I've seen in the almost 20 years that I've been doing this, that we didn't even think about the world outside of our door for the first five years of life. And only if you had a customer somewhere else did you ever think about that situation. Today, the very first day, is, well, what development are you going to do in India? Why aren't you going to outsource that to China? What's happening in Bulgaria, of all places, if you can mm -hmm. believe it? But there's a big software development group in Bulgaria that huh. people take advantage of. Then you have to be aware that this is an opportunity. You have to think it through and have reasons why you do or do not pursue that strategy. So how many company, I'm sorry, how many countries are you dealing with? Well, boy, it, it's hard to limit that. I think that uh, 
it, it's easily over 30 countries. And some of the companies I'm involved with, it's very typical your first sales are international. I've got one company that does more business in Japan than it does in the United States. What type of products are they selling? Well, the, these are technology-based products. Mm -hmm. And so what, what's interesting, what you're seeing is different geographic areas adapt to product changes. And what's happening is you're seeing more technology being adopted overseas sooner. And so now you're seeing China building out a television network based on internet protocol. Nothing like that exists here. It's a multi-billion dollar project in China. And so if you're a leading edge company like Nana, the company I'm on the board to, if you're a leading edge company in internet protocol technology, you actually have significant customers in China and you don't have customers yet in the United States. And so you have to be aware of these developments. So how are you finding these companies nowadays? Do they find you or you find them? How, how, did, how do you guys come together? Yeah, I think there's an important characteristic to any company you work with because a company is, is merely the sum total of the people who work there. And so the people really matter. Mm -hmm. And the people you work with at a very high level are the ones that can make the difference. And so the people that I work with are, at this point, very typically people that I've known for a long time, uh, people that I've, I've met over the years, I've either done business with them or just been aware of So these them. are serial entrepreneurs. This is their, you know, nth time that they've been doing this type of thing. It, it, it typically, although you can have, it, like for instance, the CEO of, of Google, you know, he was at Sun Microsystems. He was just an executive in the software department of Sun Microsystems, if you want to call that just a job. But now he's one of the most influential entrepreneurs uh, in the world, right, and will be for, for years to come. So... You can be at a company for a long period of time, have great knowledge and insight, and then suddenly see an opportunity that, that you want to take on. Kind of like a tipping point almost. I think there's something to that. Um, one of the things that, that, uh, that we've grown up with is we have a perspective that our parents didn't have. We have the perspective that we can take on multiple careers. We can do several things in the course of a lifetime versus just one thing. And so I actually think that it's overstated that you're either an entrepreneur or not. Uh, I've seen too many blurred distinctions. Uh, again, I've got one guy who's running one of my companies that was an executive for 15 years in a very large company. Uh, he's as much of an entrepreneur as, as I am, and I'd say I don't know if I've ever gotten a steady paycheck. So I, that maybe that's <laughs> what makes you an entrepreneur. Uh, but the other thing, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit, there's a, there's a spirit that, uh, that I think we grew up with that makes it a little bit unique. And well, we can talk about that uh, in a little bit if you'd like. Okay, after the break. This is Derek Branch, retired NFL player, owner, and director of Hawaii Team Sports. And you're listening to Kerry and Evan on Greater Good Radio. How do you sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Greatergoodradio.com. What does coaching have to do with running a business? Welcome to the Money Minute from Central Pacific Bank. Today, we're talking with Sherry Lee, commercial banker. Whenever we hear the word coach, we usually think of the folks who teach our kids soccer or baseball or some other sport. But coaches aren't just for kids. 
There are business coaches out there who can help you guide your company. Like a soccer coach providing motivation to a team, a good business coach can energize you with new ideas and new growth strategies. That includes analyzing industry trends and developing your network of contacts. Most importantly, a business coach can provide you with an objective outside opinion, free from the emotions that come with being an owner. Just like in sports, good coaching may be just what you need for your business to win consistently. Today's Money Minute is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, where you'll always find bankers that are fiercely loyal to you. Central Pacific Bank, member FDIC. This is Gail Jennings from HawaiiDiner.com and EverybodyEats.org. I read selectively all of the papers, but I tend to read more of the columns at Star Bulletin. A lot of it is I like Erica Engel. I like her column, The Buzz. I get good information from that. I like their coverage of the different issues. I like the Star Bulletin. Would you recommend other people to read Star Bulletin? Absolutely. I think we need to be as informed as possible. This is Jim Tollefson, President and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. I definitely would recommend the Chamber of Commerce to others. The benefits are that you get to meet other businesses, you get to work together with other businesses, and help you improve your business to make more money to be successful. If you're not a member already, you can give me a call, 545-4300, extension 388. I invite you to join us in creating a better Hawaii, Hawaii that's better for us, for our children, and for the future. Listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Today's guest is Nicholas Mitsakos, the chairman of the board of directors for Nina International. Nicholas co-founded nine companies that achieved successful IPOs or acquisitions, and has had a unique view on social entrepreneurship. Right, so, one of the things that uh, I've, I've talked to others about is, you know, we grew up in a unique time. And I'll say, you know, I was born in 1959, and so when I was a very small child, you know, we had a president who said, we're going to go to the moon. And I grew up uh, with this, the moonshot, as something that was on the news almost every night. You know, here's what the Mercury program's doing, here's what the Apollo program's doing, here's how far they got, and then they landed on the moon. And I never forgot that moment, as I think anyone who watched it would never forget. But something we all sort of felt was, we can do anything. You know, we could do that. Imagine what we could do if we just put our mind to it. And I think that's a unique experience for us. And so if you look at uh, these, these well-known characters like you know, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, you know, the list goes on and on, they all grew up at that moment as well. And I, I think that changed us. I think that you know, we look and say, well, we, we can do it. And if we have a failure, if we have the equivalent of Apollo 1 and a true disaster, we can recover. And you know, for us, failing is sort of a learning experience that can bring you to success later. And I think that the stigma of failure was sort of ameliorated in our lifetimes, at least in America. It's, it's different overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think our parents grew up with a different kind of sense. Like if you started a business and it didn't succeed, you know, you really, 
had a problem to deal with the rest of your professional career. You're a failure. You wasted people's money. You did these things. You know, we don't feel that stigma because we're all willing to take that risk because we all know that if this doesn't succeed, we still have the chance to do something else that, that can succeed. And I think that's a fundamental difference. So let's go back then. I mean, how did you get started in all of this? You, you were an entrepreneur from the get-go, or you started working somewhere, and then you moved on? How, how did this come about? Yeah, I sort of refer to myself as the accidental entrepreneur. And, and you know, the seriousness of it was I, I was in college. I had a, a high school buddy, and he and I learned how to program when we were in high school. We sort of, now this is the early 70s, so I, mean, I sort of say I, I wrote my first program in 1973, so I think that makes me one of the grandfathers. Was that on punch cards or what, what is that? It was punch cards. So okay. You fill in with a little pencil and hope they don't get out of order, otherwise <laughs> you're a dead man. Right? You know, the good old days. And so when we were in college, we wrote some programs uh, just for fun, which maybe makes me a geek, but we wrote some programs for fun. <laughs> and then it was he actually who had the idea, well, maybe we can sell this to somebody. And mm -hmm. we started a mail order business, you know, you know buy our program. And uh, people did, which just amazed me. Well, and where there, did you advertise that? How did people find out about this? There, were, it was an, there was an emerging graphics industry, which was probably focused around video games more than anywhere else. And this is back in the day when if you wanted to program a straight line that sort of curved across a screen, that took you a week in the uh -huh. programming language C. But if somebody else did it for you, you'd pay money for that. Uh -huh. And so today they're called graphics engines, which just really means you know subroutines and you can point and click and stuff happens. Well, that stuff is someone had to program that at some point. And that's kind of what we did. We Almost were, like they outsourced it to you back in the day. Back in of. the day. That, right. That's exactly what it was. We, we just figured, well, we know... You need this program, and so do 50 other people if you want to save yourself a week's worth of time. So we'll write it and sell it to you. And, and then were you guys making a lot of money in, in college? In, you know, I uh, was making about five times the amount of money as my job offer when I graduated. So I thought uh, sticking with this was a better option. And you graduated yeah. from... What well, was your undergrad? Well, undergrad was University of Southern California. Oh, okay. And so I had degrees in, uh, degrees in biology and, and degrees in computer science. And I was going to be a doctor, and I think my mother still might regret that to this day. And instead of going to medical school, I started a company. Uh -huh. And uh, I had also gotten into business school, and and later on, several years later. So why did why did you end up going to Harvard Business School if you already were running these successful businesses? Well, the kind of the short answer is it's hard to turn down a place like Harvard Business School. But uh, the longer answer is we sold that company, and it, we sold it after almost three years. And that was a success. And in trying to figure out what to do next, uh, I thought the opportunity to go to a place like Harvard and find out kind of how the business world worked mm -hmm. in, versus finding it out on an ad hoc basis. And I, I can back up a little bit here because I've been uh, an MBA student uh -huh. and I've been an MBA teacher. Okay. And I think that for certain people, an MBA makes a lot of sense. For a lot of people, it doesn't. And so if you're looking for perspective about the business world, if you're looking for an understanding of experiences that you couldn't otherwise have, or if you're looking for access to a profession that you really can't otherwise get unless you have an MBA, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to just learn general business, I, I back up from that and say, well, gee, you have a job. You know, what aren't you learning? And uh, I think it's if you go about education, I think with the right approach, which is, you know, what do I really want out of this? 
and I think it makes you a better student. It makes you more focused, and it keeps perhaps some people from I'll call it wasting their time. But you know, is education <laughs> is education ever a waste of time? You know, I, I, I you know I can't argue that it is. But uh, there may be you know some interesting applications. maybe opportunity costs where you could be doing something else that would yeah. be more beneficial. Maybe there is, and I I I have several friends in uh, in Silicon Valley who use the same concept, which is if they have a successful company, they will take a couple of years off and get a degree in something just to give them perspective and then come back and start another company. They've also got time at that point, right? They've, they've, they've got already time. made it. You've got some flexibility. Uh-huh. And I guess I, I'm advocating that you don't need to jump into the next thing. And uh, what, what helps is just a perspective about the world and as, as it evolves because it's changing so much that unless you step out and, and really take a look and see what's happening, uh, you're going to miss out on, on many, many things. Uh-huh. And so I think about you know, my experiences in Asia and, and in China. I, I love to say, to say this statistic. So in 1983, I made my first trip to Beijing. There were 200 cars in the entire city. Okay? You know, millions of bicycles and 200 cars. So 20 years later, there are 2 million cars uh-huh. in Beijing. And so that's a change that's just unprecedented. And unless you see that firsthand, you can't believe it. You can't see what the impact of something like that is. And you know, now, of course, it's all over the media, you know, the China factor and the China this and the mm-hmm. China that, blah, blah, blah. Um, there, there's substance and then there's hype. And if you look at my other example might be kind of the Internet development. So certainly in the late 90s, there was substance and there was a lot of hype. Mm-hmm. But as that cleared away, you see that there really was substance. I mean, there are Internet-based companies that are quite profitable, quite successful, and there'll be many more. And understanding what really was reality versus what was just someone's impression of what was happening. The only way you can gain that is firsthand experience. And so I think, again, something like, I use China as an example, you know, you can see there is real great, there is great opportunity. There's also great risk. And there are lots of issues that you won't, you won't uncover unless you're there and you can be on the ground talking to people and experiencing things. You know, when you first uh, sold that initial company that you guys started, how did that come about? Did you approach people or somebody approached you with an offer? I think there's a, to answer that question, I'll give a general observation that that anyone out there who owns a company, you should know this one simple truth. Companies are never sold. They're bought. So if you try to sell something, chances are you won't succeed or you certainly won't get a price that's other than what you could have gotten unless you assume that you're going to be an independent, sustainable entity. If you ever start a business with any other perspective other than, I'm on my own, I'm independent, I'm here forever, you'll compromise yourself. And so now to answer your question, you know, we were approached. And we were approached by Atari, video huh. game company that said, you know, we want to own all that. And more importantly, we don't want anyone else to own that. So you, with your tools, we can write did video games. Did you have games. patents at the time on yeah, your we technology? Did. We did. And luckily... So you guys were sophisticated straight off the bat. Uh, you know, you get sophisticated by asking a lot of questions of a lot of people. And I guess if there's another general observation I'll make is that if, regardless of how smart you are, uh, there's a great line that someone actually told me, and I'll pass it on to you. And it was our lawyer when we started this. <laughs> by the way, our lawyer was, was one of our employees' fathers, okay? So you get uh-huh. lucky sometimes, too. But uh, he said, look, if you're going to start a company, there's probably 50 things you need to know. If you're a genius, you probably can think of 25 of them. Chances are you're not a genius. So... A lot of things are going to happen that you would not have thought of that you have to deal with. So what are you going to do about that? Just try to figure it out on your own? No, the answer is you find the other 20 people who know one or two things, and you learn. And so we just we asked a lot of questions like, well, how do you do that? How do you protect yourself? 
you know, we, we just wrote a program. We're not naive to think that it takes you about, well, back then, probably 10 minutes to copy a, a software. Today it takes you less than a second. And so all of a sudden we've lost all of our value. How do you protect that? You know, all of those kind of, you know, common sense How is always... How old were you guys when you were doing this? Uh, we were, well, I was 21 when uh, the company was founded. I, I was uh, the C yes, I was the CEO at 21 years old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and an experienced entrepreneur at 24, right? So uh, you're still taking classes while you're running your company? Uh, I, when we launched the company, I was still in school. I was a so senior in college. So you're running the company out of a dorm room? Out of a dorm room, yes. Oh, like Michael Dell kind of. Uh, yes, well, Michael's done a little bit better than I over the years, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, and it would maybe that other sense that we, we realize that well, you don't need a lot of physical structure, right? To to create, and that's that, that's the other thing I guess that our uh, our era, as it were, has created for us that you can be a virtual company, you can create things, you don't need infrastructure. I mean, it's interesting. I remember anecdotally talking with uh, I have an older brother and older cousins. I'm, I'm going to start a company. And they're like, well, where? You, know, don't, you have to hire a secretary. You have to get a parking spot. You have to get an office. It's like, no, you kind of get a phone line and a computer and you're sort of in business and a mailing address. And that was something that was uh, very new, even among, I'll call it my contemporaries. But if you were five years old or 10 years older, you had no idea that you could actually do that. And there, there, does, there is an advantage, by the way. I'll call it the advantage of naivete. Like you don't know you're not supposed to be able to do it. right? And you think about, uh, maybe the analogy is, uh, you know, a child who sort of speaks his mind with great clarity because he doesn't know he's supposed to be politically correct. And so the truths come out. And this happens, I think, to a lot of people. If you don't know, you're not supposed to do it. You don't think about those limitations. And my more general point is more often than not, the limitations I confront from my entrepreneurial partners and others are ones of their own creation. Like, you know, well, we're not supposed to be able to do that. And so therefore you don't. And to flip it on itself, uh, a friend of mine who's a very successful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, I uh, came to him with an idea. And I said, you know, this, this technology doesn't exist, and we've got the breakthrough. This is going to be great. And, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, but once you make the breakthrough, everyone else will realize it can be done. So your breakthrough isn't sustainable. You know, that's not a company. That's an interesting development. And as we all know, the first mover rarely survives for this very reason, that people realize, yeah, I guess you can do that. And so that's another important concept that it's not the breakthrough, the innovation that makes the distinction. It's, you know, what will you do with it? How do you manage that? How do you create a real business from it? You're listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we've developed tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Today's guest is Nicholas Misakos, the chairman of the board of directors for Nyanya International. Nicholas co-founded nine companies that achieved successful IPOs or acquisitions and has a unique view on social entrepreneurship. Please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. Our show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely lower banking. So, Nick, can you tell us a little bit more about how you're involved with the community? Well, there's. I want to make a general observation, and uh, I'll tell a story about uh, this heated debate when I was in business school at Harvard where people were saying, who has a stake in the company? So the question was, should companies be run for the benefit solely of its shareholders, you know, its owners? And so the, there was debate about, well, you have employees, you have a community that you're part of, don't they have a stake in your business? And so the debate was back and forth. You know, you had 
people thinking, well, if you've got someone who's been an employee for 30 years, doesn't he have a stake in your company as well? And should you treat him with that kind of perspective? Of course, now to answer your question, my feeling is they shouldn't be exclusive. That if you have a company run for the benefit of its owners, the way to optimize the value is to think about everyone else that has a stake in your company. I mean, if you treat employees like they're just machines that are fungible, you know, that's kind of the result you're going to get. And, you know, my example here is think of the difference if you rent a home versus own a home. So if you feel like you're only going to be there temporarily, how do you treat it? If you own it, how do you treat it? And you may live in that home for the same period of time, but there's a higher quality and greater sense of satisfaction out of the ownership. Well, it's true with employees that if you people feel that they have an ownership stake, you know, you treat them like they do, and you, you treat them well, and you sort of stay, at, I, I call it you stay ahead of the satisfaction curve. So I know you're doing a good job for me. I know you're working hard. Do I have to wait until you ask for a raise to think about giving you one? Do I have to wait to think about health benefits before I give them to you? I mean, eventually it's going to happen. I mean, how naive do you need to be? And so if you run a company based solely on costs, there's always a place in the world where you can get cheaper costs. And there are businesses that are run that way. I don't want to participate in those businesses. So I'm not informed enough maybe to speak about how to handle those businesses. But I think many businesses think that they're cost-based when they might not be. And here's a good example, I think, in the automotive industry. So if you go back through history, uh, why is there an acrimonious relationship between workers and companies in the United States? And I think the answer is because they get what they deserve. So workers were treated very poorly in the, in the 20s and 30s, as you, as you probably know. And they reacted with the unions, and it became very acrimonious. You know, and now they're so structured and there's so little communication that they're too expensive, too unwieldy, and they're, gonna, and they're getting their lunch eaten by other companies that treat people differently. And I think that when it comes to a community, the community really matters. You get support from your community. You get help from the community. It keeps a company going. Uh, you know, Hawaii Biotech is a great example. So I think one of the assets that we have is the culture here in Hawaii, that people support each other. The community supports us. We're proud to be part of the community. And I mean, I love to tell this one story. I showed up for a meeting at Hawaiian Telecom. I was going to meet the CEO of Hawaiian Telecom just to, to, to chat a little bit. And the security guard comes to me and says, we love the work you're doing at Hawaii Biotech. And you know, that has such a great impact, on, even on me. I How mean, do you I, even know that you were at Hawaii Biotech? You know, it, 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 sort of, it, it, it came with the note that I was coming to the company, and he, and he knew about the company, knew about the work we're trying to do, and that has such a positive impact. And you go back, you tell the people about this, and you, know, you, get, you get harder work, you get better work. Um, you get support for many of the dimensions that are unpredictable. You know, we need to have a facility somewhere. You know, we need to have access. You know, we need to have a source for employees. You know, we need to have a lot of things that a community can really provide. Well, you know what? We've got a lot more to talk about in our after show. So uh, we want to thank Nicholas Mitsakos for joining us today on Greater Good Radio Hawaii. We definitely appreciate all your stories and your experiences is just second to none. We hope that you'll come back and share that with us again. For listeners out there, please join us for the after show portion where Nicholas Mitsakos shares with us more insight into taking companies public and what it takes to become a venture capitalist. If you're interested in Nicholas's secrets and the inside story of many other successful entrepreneurs, please go to greatergoodradio.com and listen to the after shows. This show is brought to you today by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely loyal banking. 
This is Evan Leong and Carrie Leong saying please join us next time for another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii. How do you sell this company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Greatergoodradio.com.